All right, thank you everybody for joining another Pro Report podcast. We've done a number of top five podcasts. We've had some amazing special guests. We've covered some humongous bands, some lesser known acts that maybe deserve more attention. Uh, and we've been lucky enough to have a, a bunch of great guests come in. You could check out all the previous podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page, progreport.com. It's all all there. And thank you everybody for listening and checking out everything. We're going to do something a little bit different today because typically the discussions have revolved around one particular band, uh, talking about their albums or songs or that type of thing. Uh, but you know, as debates go, there is uh, fewer relevant debates than best drummer. So we have to uh, try and approach that and we'll probably eventually get into guitarists and singers and so on. And, and uh, there's way too many to cover to, to justify uh, picking only top five. So we have two more guests here and um, really we're, we're covering a lot here. So uh, I'm going to introduce these two guys coming from different worlds and uh, we'll explain how the discussion is going to go. Uh, my first guest is Kyle Fagela. Did I say your last name right? Is that right? Uh, you know, sometimes I wish it were pronounced differently, but it's actually Fagala, so you just got to go for it. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. there you go. And uh, <laughs> a, a good friend, uh, drummer on in his own right, uh, and a big fan of uh, you know Neil Morrison, Mike Portnoy. I think you run one of the forums online, I believe. Yeah, uh, it started started the Mike Portnoy forum. That's right, and uh, you know knows those guys well, and he's he loves to get into these drum discussions. So I thought he'd be a great person to bring on board and uh, throw his two cents in. And then we also, like we like to have great musicians on board that are experts in their, in their field. Uh, Randy McStein is joining us, who's an amazing musician, guitar player, singer, songwriter, and a number of, number of bands. Uh, Randy, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what we decided to do, we were talking about how to do this podcast. And, you know, if you decided to do just top five, you run the risk of really excluding a lot. If we were all covering all years together, uh, there's every chance that Neil Peart or uh, Peart, sorry, or Mike Portnoy ends up number one or number two on all our lists, that type of thing. So, you know, we need to expand this a little bit more. So we've divided into three eras of Prague. Um, Randy is going to be responsible for the sort of classic era of Prague, which is, we're going to say 70s to early 80s, give or take a year or two. And uh, that'll cover a good amount of fantastic drummers and a difficult challenge. I have no idea. We haven't discussed what we're all, who our people are. So uh, I have no idea where he's going. Um, Kyle <laughs> is going to do uh, sort of the, the uh, 90s, uh, I guess late 80s to uh, about 2005, covering sort of the second wave there, um, which uh, are a lot of guys that, that I think we all know and love. And I am going to tackle the modern era of drummers. So um, and, and sort of the way we're looking at it is, yes, drummers like, uh, you know, Neil from Rush or uh, Mike Portnoy and so on have been in, in multiple decades uh, in some, you know, 30, 40 years they've been playing. So we're going to go, we're going to stick them in the year, the, the era that they're most defined with. And we'll try to do this as best as we can without <laughs> offending the drummers themselves. But this is all in good fun. And if we left out your favorite drummer, please don't kill us online. Uh, <laughs> 
and uh, all right. So that being said, a lot of introduction. We uh, want to go chronological here. I, I th- well, at least you got least, to. We're Prague fans. At least by the Prague. era. Yeah. So, but, right. but well, the order of your five through one is what? Who you think is fifth through one? That that does not have to be in any specific order, other than your what you decided. So anyway, that being said, here we go. Uh, Randy, your number five drummer, classic era prog drummer. All right. Well, I'll, I just got to preface this by saying, you know, one through five, obviously the, where I place these, I think are sort of arbitrary, but I'm, I'm going to start with what I would call uh, somewhat of a wild card pick, which is Barry Mar Barlow from nice. Jethro Tull. I feel like his influence is more, more heard um, than realized because I, I don't think uh, among the classic names, he's not usually the, f- you know, among the first group that people always uh, talk about, but, you know, you have somebody who joined Jethro Tull, uh, you know, basically from thick as a brick. So we're talking, you know, between 71 and 72 um, and was there all the way till about 1980. That's a lot of records there and and that's really like when you talk about the the progressive rock era of Jethro Tull um at least the most noticeably progressive rock stylings of the band um he was there you know thick as a brick is 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 obviously a a masterpiece of the genre you know and then you get to passion play and and all sorts of records I mean it's just so many albums and the band was so prolific so um I think the, the key thing about him, uh, if I think about the context of what was going on in progressive rock at that time, so let's say 1972, which is like, talk about a crazy year for just masterpieces all over the place um, from basically every single band in that genre. It's like everybody was like peaking around that time, you know? Um, but he in context of the Jethro Tull music, I think what he did that, uh, that kind of paved the way for people, you know, into the late seventies, eighties and nineties is sort of like the hard rock element of Jethro Tull. Um, even prior to him with Clive Bunker, you know, on, on, on the first four Jethro Tull records, Aqualung, I think the song Aqualung and, and Cross-Eyed Mary, uh, you know, I don't think you get to like Iron Maiden, if those songs don't exist, you know That's what I true. mean? Yeah. So Clive Bunker paved the way. Um, but with Thick as a Brick, Barry Moore Barlow, I think, you know, the, the music got uh, more hard edged. It got obviously a lot trickier, musically speaking. And um, he he sort of carried that torch for like that combination of hard rock and, and almost like proto metal drumming. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of incorporation of double bass drumming, which... If you think about a lot of the 70s guys, which we'll get to, um, many of them were were single bass guys, you know, um, and he was very much incorporating double bass strongly uh, throughout the catalog, all the way into uh, one of my favorite tall records, Stormwatch. Uh, there's amazing drumming on that record. Um, obviously, the live one, too. But yeah, I'm rambling here. But uh, Barry Moore Barlow, I think, is somebody who definitely... I don't think you get to like progressive metal stylings without touching on what he did and then obviously getting to rush. But, you know, we're, we're talking a good three years before uh, fly by night, um, which back then three years 
meant a world of difference in terms of where people were well, back pushing. then everybody was doing two or three albums a year so you could cover a lot of ground in in, in yeah <clears throat> yeah exactly so uh, I, I just want to say I love the pick. I actually had it in my list and thought it was a weird pick too. But um, some fun stuff about him I'd read on uh, on him is that Jimmy Page actually considered him to replace Bonham when Bonham died. Yeah. I think that that, that kind of says a lot about the, the way that he played and the powerful way that he played. Whereas I think Clive Bunker was more kind of jazz-influenced and a little bit more loose. Uh, yeah. Barlow's got that tighter, that metal, that more intentional kind of heavy heavy-handedness and even – uh, spacing of his drumming. Um, he also played on uh, Ingve's Rising Force album, which I love. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a random fun fact about him. So, yeah, he played with Uli Jean Roth for a little bit from Scorpions. Um, he definitely, yeah, like I said, kind of bridged that gap um, between like hard rock and metal um, into that progressive. I don't, I don't think he's a drummer in the states that gets a lot of credit though. Do you yeah. hear his name often? I don't. I don't think he doesn't he's get listed for like best prog rock drummer for yeah. some reason. I, I yeah. think actually both the Jethro Tulls drummers are, are two of the best, and uh, I don't really understand why they don't kind of get that credit. I got to play Aqualung before Cruise of the Edge, and it's it's on the surface an easy song, but like when you actually study it, it's a really interesting, fun song. So I think they both deserve you know. Their, yeah, their Clive Bunker was was amazing, um, and you know, frankly, I mean. This, I think, gets into a bigger discussion about, um, and I think this would probably be a whole other podcast, really, but, you know, the what the context, it's a bit chicken or egg, like the music versus the musicians. And, mm. you know, what what is it about Ian Anderson's writing um, that allowed for these guys to thrive? Or what was it about their playing that was able to uh, influence his writing? You know, to, so it's, it's always going to be a combination of the two um and Jethro Tull just by nature of I think Ian Anderson's brilliance and you know they always had a stable of great musicians I mean you had to be to be in the band um but you know Mark Craney was awesome Don Perry obviously was was there uh probably I think the longest serving uh Jethro Tull drummer if I'm not mistaken so yeah I mean all these guys really brought something to the table. Um, I just, I think it was Barlow kind of was there for the real meat of their, of their uh, discography. That was that was good, uh, Kyle. Let's let's move on to the next decade. Uh, your first pick, number five. Yeah. So if if you'll allow me, just a quick monologue. I feel like, when, <laughs> and you can cut it out later if you want. But um, for me, like if you're asking, like who are the the top five prog drummers from an era? So I'm looking at it, ninety to two thousand five. 
it's super difficult. So I had some criteria. I don't know if you guys used criteria or if you just kind of went with it. Uh, I obsessed over this. Roy knows. Roy's never going <laughs> to ask me to do one of these again. But um, I had four basic criteria. Maybe this sounds kind of like what you guys use, but the first is for a drummer, for me at least, as a drummer, they've got to be musical. And I, and I say it like this, they've got to, it's just as important what they don't play as what they do play. Um, I think their feel and whether they make the songs better or not is huge. Um, I think usually when you see these lists, I think people kind of uh, condense it to who's the most technical drummer, which for me is probably one of the least important criteria. This is prog rock. So like everyone's technical, of course. Um, but uh, I don't think that just because someone can play like double paradiddles with their feet at 220 means that they're the best drummer of all time. Um, so musical technical, the third is influential. Um, I've always said this of the best guitar player, the best drummer on earth. They might just be practicing alone in their garage. But I think for a list like this, it's got to be somebody who's well-known. I know that's self-evident, but I think also needs to have played on some classic or essential albums. Yeah. And then the fourth criteria is that they're essential. I think that the band would not be the same without them. And it's hard to kind of put a thumb on exactly what that means. But just to try and make it a little bit more objective, that's the criteria that I, I tried to hold myself to. Because otherwise, I would have people on here that I just like or I like their music or something. But, right. <laughs> um, Anyway, so with that in mind, Roy knows this. I messaged Roy. I think the top four of this list, when you look at kind of this middle era of prog rock drumming, I think it's pretty cemented, and we'll get to those. But number five was like, it was, it was man, it was like my rosebud. It was a struggle. So I looked between three basic drummers, Mark Zonder, Fate's Warning, Martin Lopez from Opeth, and then Thomas Hawk from Meshuggah. Um, so Zonder, he was on a lot of great albums, Parallels, Pleasant Shade of Grey, he was with that band from 88 to 2005. So he kind of like fits into that era. When you look back at like old modern drummer magazines from like the early nineties, he's the one that, that is being talked about a lot with progressive rock along with uh, rock and field and some others. But, uh, and then Lopez was with Opeth from 97 to 2006. He's on Blackwater park, damnation, my favorite ghost reveries. Uh, and then Thomas Hawk, I think is an interesting choice. If you look at like top drummers just in general, he's going to make one of those lists. He's, he's a monster on the drums. Um, but Meshuggah, I would say is like really more a metal, extreme metal kind of band. Uh, even though like when you look at the gent style of prog metal, it's rare that there's a genre that you can attribute to one single band But with Meshuggah. That's what the case is. Uh, and so Misha from Periphery kind of calls them, you know, they, they started gent. And so I think that's an important subgenre of prog these days, but ultimately, sorry for all that monologue. Um, <laughs> I decided to go with Martin Lopez from Opeth. And I think mainly, and this is where it becomes subjective, I just like Opeth's music more. Um, and so I think Opeth, with that band, you see, in my opinion, the first prog metal band that really blends traditional prog with growl vocals and kind of more of the extreme metal patterns. Um, and the thing I like about Opeth and the thing I like about Lopez's drumming is that they have such a wide range of styles. And I think he plays to all those very well. So he's very musical. Um, and it's a shame that he's not in the band anymore in this like tool inspired band named Soen now that's really good um but I miss him and Opeth for sure uh, even though I think they're great now but I miss what he brought to that band
for me, Ghost Reveries is, I think, his best performance in that band. It sounds the best uh, production-wise. Uh, and the song, The Bang of the Hounds, I think there's like nine or t- ten like separate dynamic and musical variations in that song. I mean, I think it it's like the encyclopedia of Opeth, if you will. It, it, it just has everything that they do great in one song. It's track two on that album. That album was definitely my mind-blowing, like, Opeth kind of... Um, you know, the gateway. I mean, I had, I had heard Blackwater Park, I had heard Damnation, um, Deliverance, but I think Ghost Reveries was the first one that, like, I actually bought when it was new and came out and was really kind of anticipating it. Yeah. All right, so jumping into my era, you know, it was interesting looking at the modern era because uh, I, I said, okay, I, I'm pretty confident Kyle's going to include Portnoy and, and some of these guys in his Right. So I'm not going to I'm not going to include Mike, you know, some of these names and I'm going sort of really new. Right. The newer, newer guys that are covered more these days. And, you know, your modern drummer magazines and have have started to pave the way with with the gent albums and and that kind of music. And um, they're playing bigger venues than a lot of the guys that we grew up to love and selling more records than uh, these days than a lot of the guys we grew up to love. So. It's it's sort of an interesting uh, period, but I'm going to start my my number five choice. It's actually a guy that's known more for studio playing and has bounced around of late the last few years with a bunch of different bands, and he's becoming this sort of go-to guy for consistent great drumming, and that's Craig Blundell, who right now is touring with Stephen Wilson and and has become his go-to drummer replacing Marco Miniman, who was who toured and played with Steven for many years. Uh, he also plays with uh, Frost. He's on the new Kino album uh, with Lonely Robot, all that John Mitchell stuff. Um, it does a lot of other studio work that we probably don't even know about. And really been around for a few years, but has made the bulk of his presence in the last really five years. That's when he's sort of all over the place and working regularly all the time. Um, tremendous drummer, just uh, can do everything. Uh, very dynamic with Stephen Wilson's music, especially. It can go all over the place, and he can uh, he could be as technical, and he can also play groove and some more simplistic, which Stephen likes to do, switching music up at times. So uh, that's my choice. Uh, would be Craig Blundell. Randy, so you're up with uh, your next choice, number four. I guess I put Carl Palmer in my number four. There you go. Well, it's inevitable, I think, that he has to be on the list. And, you know, it's funny because among drummers, I think over time, um, he has been somewhat debated just because it kind of depends on what you look for in a drummer. I mean, Mm -hmm. in some ways, ELP overall 
kind of represents some of the excesses of the genre and all this kind of stuff, you know, that there's like an easy uh, target, I feel, when people want to point to why progressive rock got so, yeah, you know, whatever <laughs> people want to say about it in the 70s. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of like, a, as a trio and coming out of like the psychedelic era, you know, of like the Jimi Hendrix experience and Cream and, and all of these kind of like power trios, um, Carl Palmer was really kind of bridging the gap, I think, between his interests and basically trying to be Buddy Rich. Um, but mm. but also, you know, what, what Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker and what those guys were bringing to like a rock trio. You know, you got everybody's coming out of this jazz era into psychedelics and, you know, go back to the crazy world of Arthur Brown and the first Atomic Rooster record. And you, you hear Carl Palmer, he's like super young. He's like 18 or something. Um, and, you know, he's trying to do more groove-based stuff. I think admittedly, um, he wouldn't make the top five list of grooviest drummers of all time. But, you know, his ideas and the way he approached the ELP music, I think is pretty undeniable. Um, his, his technique was, was pretty astounding for the time um in terms of his his hands and his single bass work uh was was very quick and um as a friend of mine pointed out to me he was like really one of the first guys to introduce a lot of linear style drumming um to the the rock world you know guys like steve gadd and stuff like really obviously um put it on a pedestal but you know his his fusion of like orchestral playing and jazz and, and rock into the context of that music um, is really, you know, it's sort of of its time, but I think it's also kind of timeless. And I, and I listened to um, the live ELP record, the, the classic one, the triple live um, welcome back my friends recently. And his playing is just so on fire on that record. Um, I think I think his uh, influence and and the way he contributed to the songs by the way he played is as important as anything. And I think you're right. I mean, he's maybe not considered top five drummer all time, that type of thing, if you took it as a whole. But just from that era and from what he was able to do, um, I think it's absolutely important and, and worthy.
so in, in looking at Carl, Carl Palmer, I think he'd have to be on anyone's list just for ELP and also for Asia. So we move on to the eighties and he plays for like roughly 10 years and then gets back into the band and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, I I'd kind of been reading about him and it's interesting to me to look at who people consider to be the best drummer in the world at certain times and how sometimes those people sustain that reputation. Sometimes they kind of lose that reputation. But the late seventies, Carl Palmer was considered like one of the best drummers, if not the best drummer. I think Neil Peart comes in and kind of takes that over. And then I think as Carl Palmer becomes a drummer for Asia and it becomes less about the bombasticness of his drumming and it's more kind of playing to the songs. And it's more about the eighties. I think he loses that reputation for some reason he never gets, gets it back. But if you look at like his drum solos from the late seventies and it kind of Randy alluded to this, like at the time where it was a little ridiculous, he's got like two gongs and he's got a bell <laughs> and he's ringing the bell with his teeth as he's hitting both gongs, you know? Um, but it's awesome. Like his, he's sort of like the buddy rich of prog rock. Like he's really, really technically gifted and, and just beating the mess out of the drums. I mean, he's, he's in it, you know, you see someone at their prime and I think for him it's, it's the late seventies. And I mean, He's amazing. So, like, if if he's not on your list, he should be. I feel. Yeah, I agree. Uh, he's awesome. And uh, just as recently, being on the cruise, I mean, the, yeah. forming the classic ELP stuff, and he's got a killer band with him, and and he's actually doing all this great art stuff that he's doing, which is killer. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I, I think because I've heard people say, you know, like, oh, imagine what ELP would have sounded like with such and such drummer. And it's like, okay, you can say that now, um, but you wouldn't you wouldn't even be having that conversation if Palmer hadn't been there to create those parts you know so sometimes like if if it's the execution of the parts that you get hung up on so be it and you we could think of a ton of drummers that we would love to hear tackle that material now um but he was the guy you know yeah. and and he and he created those parts and um you know, the, the band would not have been what they were. I mean, you get Cozy Powell coming in in the 80s, who I think is also a very important drummer, um, but, you know, just super rock solid. And I think after that, um, you hear Carl Palmer try to incorporate a little bit more of that thing into like 90s ELP. Um, and I think admittedly, just not as much his forte as the the kind of early days of ELP and and him like really stretching out you know yeah. i think that's where he really made his mark great all right kyle who you got next all right so this uh this pick is going to be maybe controversial i don't know but for me i feel like he has to be on the list um and so this is danny carey from tool uh when i when i think of danny carey i think of and this is i think important too of drummers is that if you could play me three seconds of any drummer on my list i could tell you who it was and i think you can definitely say that of carey uh, I think of like polyrhythms, tribal sounding drums, uh, really odd time signatures. And he's such a, a powerful drummer. I think there's a few drummers. You can maybe make a list of five or 10 that are just heavy hitters. Like obviously Bonham and Pierre, uh, Billy Cobham, uh, Dennis Chambers, some of those kind of guys that just beat the mess out of the drums. And, and Kerry is one of those guys. And if you see him, I don't know how tall he is, but he's well over six feet long hair, just an enormous guy. looks like a linebacker. Um, and I think that plays into the way that he plays drums. Um, and so I think the question becomes, and, I, and I'll put it to you guys, uh, and maybe just yes or no, do you feel like Tool is Prague as a band? Well, I have my thoughts. I mean, look, <laughs> <laughs> it, they, they, they half are and they half aren't. That's just how it is for, yeah. for me. I mean, because here's the thing. I, have, I, I know a lot of people that like them that like no other Prague band right. and listen to Nirvana and Soundgarden and this, and then Tool they love. 
And right. so I just think that's looking at it from a different perspective. And so I don't know how then they're a prog band. It's sort of a weird view of looking at it. It's very divisive, which I don't mean to be, but I think that there's, there's sort of a difference there. Now, their technical nature is excellent, every member. And so the fact that they do these long, sort of almost conceptual albums and 15-minute songs and things like that lend to the prog fan also liking them. So I think, I think they really ride the line well, which is partially why they're immensely popular. Um, if For me, they're more of a metal band, but prog fans do like them. So that's, I don't know, Randy, if you agree on that, but that's sort of my take on them. Yeah, I think you're probably, uh, I, I think I would agree with that. I, I'm not um, that well-versed in their stuff, to be honest. I mean, uh, they're one of those bands that every time I hear them, I think Kyle's absolutely right. Like, you know, within seconds that it's Tool, you know, and that definitely has to count for something. Um, but, you know, it's almost like that, where do you draw that line between like art rock and prog rock? If you want to yeah. talk about the classic era, um, maybe you could say the same for them, you know, nobody's really throwing the art metal tag around. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't think that one's <laughs> going to really stick. So I think, I think prog metal will have to do. Um, I don't even know how much they would consider themselves a part of it or not. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, that's the interesting conversation is I, I, I don't know this for sure. And I'm not the world's biggest tool fan, but I, I'm pretty certain they would not think of themselves as a prog band but I think they're one of those unique acts that sort of transcends genre and their genre really is sort of like tool. Like you, you, you hear of bands, oh, they sound like tool. Like they sort of are a singular thing. And I think they're sort of a mix of prog and art rock. I agree with you there. They even like tour with bands that are sort of like what I call like prog adjacent bands, like even Meshuga. Well, well uh, think about it like this. I mean, I mean, they're a band that could back in the day, I, they may have played it or not. I'm not sure, but yeah. They could have played something like Lollapalooza next to Ice Cube and a band like Garbage and everybody would love them. Right. Whereas you can't say that for most of the bands on Cruise to the Edge. No. You no. Know, so they're they're definitely their unique sort of animal. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. That when you look at who they've toured with in the past, it's it's pretty hilarious. But I mean, they also toured with King Crimson. Uh, right. They toured with Mastodon. I saw them with Primus. Um, so I, they definitely have a prog, you know, nature. I, I think it's not fair to also discount someone's progressiveness because they're successful. You know, I think there is that kind of, uh, you know, that thing where if, well, if they're too successful, they're no longer prog. I think people do that with Pink Floyd. They're like, well, they're not. Well, yeah. well look, the tool is successful without intentionally trying to write a commercial. You can't accuse them of trying sure. to write a commercial hit. I mean, they never have ever. And I don't. Yeah, they're, they're one of the few bands that can get away with like a nine minute single. Which yeah. Is incredible um yeah. and I, I think it goes to show that that context of 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 it all is so important you know like if you're bringing if they wanted to call themselves a metal band first and foremost then maybe the next step is to say that they have successfully brought progressive rock elements to a metal context which might explain why that is seen um, as maybe more acceptable to their fans who might not like prog rock at all um, mm -hmm. versus a prog band trying to bring metal elements. You know, I, I really do think there's a difference. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, this, this is like way left field, but like uh, I love a band like Wilco, for instance, who love Wilco. I yeah. find to be incredibly progressive in nature. Um, nobody's mm -hmm. going to call them a, 
progressive rock band, but right. I think what they do and how they stretch whatever box people want to put them in is ultimately incredibly progressive. And a lot of times, I mean, if you go to see a live show, I mean, they, they'll take it way out there. Um, but none of the people there, you know, are going to be talking about whether or not they're, they're prog rock or, or whatever, <laughs> even, even though the, you know, the, the, I think the aesthetic of it is, is sort of built into some of what they, what they do. So, you know, maybe, maybe for a band like tool, it could be the case that maybe Danny Carey, you know, loves prog rock or whatever it is. And maybe somebody else in the band doesn't necessarily. And there's kind of a balance there. I mean, um, it's, as it's far as, as far as Carey himself though, for your list, to me, he is, he's the sound of the band. Um, and yeah, so, I'm the bass player. And, and he's amazing and uh, definitely uh, deserves to be on the list. So I, I wouldn't have an issue with that at all. be somewhat controversial just because it i mean you know i i don't even think of them as a progressive metal band i just think of them as their own band but i think when you're thinking well who's the most progressive drummer from that era who progressed the art form who approaches their music in an inspiring way that's progressive i think really going back to like the original definition of progressive rock i mean when you think about these like you know these pioneers of progressive rock they weren't labeling themselves as progressive rock bands they weren't on progressive rock labels i think it was more about doing something different and innovating. I also agree with what Randy said. Wilco is one of my favorite bands and no one in the crowd, you know, they're, they're more from an Americana post grunge kind of background. And so, but they're super progressive. So I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. I'll share this. Like I, like I said, I'm doing these quintessential songs for whatever this is worth. Hopefully this is helpful. But if you look at their song lateralis and it gets talked about a ton, but this is kind of my best argument for them being prog is uh, the song was originally called nine, eight, seven. It, it goes in a sequence of nine, eight, eight, eight to seven, eight. And then it's also this whole Fibonacci thing. Have you ever read about this, Roy? But you need to study this song, and I don't want to go off onto a huge tangent, but look up on YouTube everything that went into the writing of Lateralis and how, um, so the Fibonacci sequence is this mathematical thing. It shows up in like spiraling shapes, so ferns and pine cones. It's this idea that zero and then one and then one and then two. So you start adding the numbers in sequence, and so you go to two, three, five, eight, 13, 21, all this kind of stuff. But the short version of it is, they incorporate all those numbers into the syllables that they sing lyrically and the drum patterns. And I mean, well, now that's total prog right there. So, right. <laughs> so you look at a song like that and I'm like, well, how is that not one of the most important prog rock songs of that era? And the idea that they would even try and do that is like, to me, the most progressive thing ever. And you really have <laughs> to read on it. Yeah, no, I think that lends it. That's definitely prog right there for sure. Uh, all right, let's, let's move on. Um, my number four, uh, this might be a, a Homer pick a little bit cause it's one of my favorite bands. And I, 
And I think one of the best bands in the world right now, and that's Haken, and it's uh, Ray Hearn, their drummer. Um, and uh, but you know he's he's a phenomenal drummer. Um, I, I don't have a lot of sort of enormous backstory with him. I know he's one of the founding members of the band. He joined when he was like seventeen. He might not even be thirty years old yet, young guy. Uh, and uh, you know he brings forward that old school. Uh, a dream theater style to his playing um, really great with, with sort of polyrhythms and changing time signatures and uh, double bass playing and, and all of that stuff that Portnoy, it, he sounds like a new version of Portnoy to me when he plays and uh, uh, super nice guy, uh, British guy. Um, it's sort of a short description there, but I've seen him live a number of times and he's the most impressive person on stage to me when I see the band play and they're a phenomenal live band, but you can just watch him the entire time. He's amazing. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go with Ray Hearn and uh, you know, you can listen to stuff like what he does on the shorter songs to a song like Earthrise, for example, which is sort of yeah. like this pop song, but it is super complicated, crazy drumming going on in the back of that thing. And uh, that that's tremendous. You can listen to the long 15-minute epics and he's shredding and whatever. But if you just listen to Earthrise and how hard that song is by itself, and it's impressive. Yeah, I, I think – so I love the pick of Ray. He's on my list. I, I think what he brings is this classical music background. He's actually a, a really uh, decorated tuba player. And so I think he, he brings to the drums this preciseness where I think he – I don't know if he mentally does it or if he writes it out, but he has an idea of every note that he's going to play, which kind of in some ways reminds me of Neil Peart, whereas I think Portnoy plays more kind of in the spirit of the moment. I think Ray kind of approaches it more uh, maybe intellectually, if you will, and he knows every note he's going to play. And I think in that way, you get these drum parts that are really amazing, almost like long solos. And like you said, on a short song, he, he, he has some beautiful stuff in there. So I think his drumming on Affinity for me is – incredible brings in the electronic sounds of, of that I love like mid 80s era rush that most people hate and I love it yeah. um and so uh yeah I'm a huge fan of his he's super talented I think there's so much more that I look forward to hearing out of Ray because he's just I think endlessly talented Okay, let's let's swing back. Uh, Randy, number three. Uh, Phil Collins. All right, I love that pick. Thank you yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah, he has to be there, um, without a doubt. You know, um, Genesis, of course, but you know, Brand X. If if you've never heard his drumming on the early Brand X records, um, you should definitely check that out because his what he brought to the kind of 
fusion context is really cool. Um, the first record, Unorthodox Behavior, uh, the, just him on the first track, uh, just great stuff. Um, and, you know, also that period was, there was kind of like a, a down period for Genesis. So he was just playing on a lot of different stuff. So right. he was popping up on Brian Eno records and, uh, you know, Anthony Phillips and, and all sorts of stuff that he was doing. Um, and to say nothing of that transitional period of the late seventies into the early eighties, where you really see his style shift to a bigger sound, um, more, more toms and, and just more of like a power thing. Um, you know, his drumming on the, the third Peter Gabriel record and all that kind of stuff, obviously into his solo career. Um, I think the main thing about Phil, what, what uh, he really brought to the genre is a sense of groove. Um, I think he had a groove that a lot of people uh, in progressive rock in general, you know, things often you were saying earlier, Kyle, about like people focus on the technical aspect of things. Um, you know, Phil was a pretty technical drummer, but he was also very rooted in, in a lot of groove and, much to the horror of progressive rock fans that would later discover his love of R&B and, uh, <laughs> you know, soul music and whatever. Um, you know, if, if you think about it, though, that that's prevalent in his playing from the beginning. And um, and I think that, uh, yeah, just his the way he played, you know, was, was just really, really, you know, a lot really of good. classic, a lot of classic uh, rock, I'll, I'll say generally from that era was a lot of Tom fills all the time, right? It, it, even if you look at uh, stuff Keith Moon was doing or all those guys. Oh, sure, What yeah. Phil was doing was almost, it was more rhythmical and creating rhythms for specific songs that you had never heard before at that time. And even today still sound unique to me. Stuff like Watcher of the Skies, the, the thing that he plays throughout that song, uh, a song like Down and Out, from and then there were three is really specifically unique to that song the stuff he does in supper's ready um he was really inventive uh and uh stuck to the stuck to within the song but really inventive in his use of a hi-hat uh and and uh different time signatures so i think he doesn't get enough credit at all yeah, I, I think one benefit of being a young guy, so I'm 33, so I did not grow up during the 70s, and I didn't experience that disappointment of Genesis becoming a different kind of band, or the same thing with Rush, and so I think I'm able to listen to these things with with you know clean ears, and I love 80s Rush, and I love 80s and 90s Genesis, like it's not the same thing, uh, it certainly it becomes you know not prog uh, clearly, but I think uh, you know I think Phil Collins gets maybe a hard rap because most people think of him as a lead singer. But when I look back at, at Genesis and I compare that to the other like, you know, kind of beginning prog bands, I think his drumming stands the test of time better than anyone else's from, from those initial bands. So, you know, ELP and, uh, sorry, um, uh, King Crimson. Yes, I think his drumming stands the test of time better. Um, I think it's really tasteful. I think he's technically, he's there. Um, and I think the fact that he is a songwriter, I think shows through in the way he drums. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, well, I don't disagree with the things that you were saying, uh, but that last point. And, you know, the thing, too, is, like, you can listen through all the Genesis records from, uh, 
well, he's not on the first record. So from nursery crime up through, let's say, Abacab, right? Yeah. And the production style, um, you know, they gets better throughout the years. I mean, that's subjective, but um, Trick of the Tail was was the Genesis album that really, um, you know, opened me up to their music when I was like in my early teens, and it's still. If not my top Genesis album, it's definitely a top three. And I think his his drumming on that album is just unbelievable. You know, Dance on a Volcano, uh, Los Endos, obviously. And um, his drumming on Robbery, Assault, and Battery um, always blew my mind. And, you know, but from that point on, you know, the, the production style starts to get a little different. Um, you start to hear the drums a little bit more clearly. And you end up with something like, and then there were three or or some of his drumming on Duke, where there's still it's like kind of the last gasp of them, you know, really doing progressive rock in their classic way. Um, but he's he's incorporating that with kind of a bigger drum sound. And um, yeah, I, I think that his influence is is very it's undeniable. Okay, Kyle, number three. Okay, number three. All right, so I'm going to go with somebody that you guys probably know. This is a, assuredly a progressive rock drummer, but this is Gavin Harrison, uh, best known from Porcupine Tree. I think the interesting thing about Gavin is you couldn't imagine him not being on this list, but when you actually look, so I'm looking at 90 to 2005, he didn't join Porcupine Tree until 2002. So you're talking three years, and he's only on two albums during this time period that I considered, and he's definitely in the top five. I think that's super impressive. Um, I think Gavin's drumming is, it's again, it's, it is singular. Um, I think of control, precision, he's got limb interdependence, which is not just independence, but everything he plays with all of his limbs, it, it plays together. Um, I think he's one of the best balanced drummers. Uh, he's a studio drummer, I think more than anything. I think that's why he's so good. And uh, I think of him, at least in this era, as when I think of linear type beats and bringing that to the forefront of Prague, I think of him, um, even just as an example, like David Letterman had some drummers on. David's a, he's a drummer himself, but he had some to, to play drum solos. You got guys like Neil Peart and Dennis Chambers, Stuart Copeland, and Gavin Harrison was one of those. Um, so, I mean, he's just, he's kind of expanded himself as a name beyond Prague rock in a way that we don't typically see. Um, Obviously, he's gone on to play with King Crimson, Pineapple Thief, 
Uh, Randy, you may not know this, but he also played with a band called Lo-Fi Resistance. Um, oh, really? Tell I, me I about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he's been around a long time. This, you know, sure. you talk about him being with Porcupine Tree just in that that short period. Sure. But this is a guy that was drumming from got the early oh. '80s or before. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. With correct. a lot of different like Italian Lots of touring. artists. He played with Lisa Stansfield. Yeah, which is like, pop. Uh, right, and that's why he made the list. Yeah, so this this guy's been on a number of records, a number of bands, and is uh, one of my favorite drummers to watch. I agree. I mean, he's just awesome. What was it like playing with with him and having him on your record, Randy? Well, I mean, it was an honor, and there's a big story to that that we don't have time for uh, how we met and everything. But um, I remember just hearing In Absentia for the first time, and um, I mean, it's just such a great sounding record uh, aside from it just, you know, musically being, uh, I think, one of the best of the decade. But um, but yeah, I remember hearing his drumming on that for the first time and and, and his just fluidity. There's just, just something about, you know, his playing at the end of Trains or or, or his groove in uh, Sound of Muzak and all over the record. That's my favorite drumming ever is on the sound of music. It's the yeah, best, it's, just, it's, it's just the best groove thing. ever. That's my quintessential song for him, for sure. Oh my God. Yeah. And um, what struck me about that is like, it was hearing him on record was one thing and the drums were recorded so well. And then obviously dead wing as well. Um, but I didn't see them live until the dead wing tour. And that's where I really saw him open up live. And I had no idea what was under the hood you know it was like yeah. the albums only kind of hinted at what he was capable of yeah, he's a monster. and then and then i think you hear that shift stylistically with fear of a blank planet where he he really put his stamp on the material and if you want to talk about being able to write music based around the type of people that you have in your band it was very clear from that moment on that uh it's like Stephen Wilson knew what he had in the band and what what they were capable of doing musically with a guy like that. the band to another level when he joined i mean the stuff before was great and i love those albums but it was a it was another level of of uh drumming and it, it changed yeah. the, it changed what they could do musically i'm gonna jump in with my number three uh again continuing my sort of view on on really sort of newer guys that uh haven't been around for that long uh but this guy certainly has made a big name for himself is matt garska from animals as leaders I have a hard time pronouncing his last name <laughs> uh 
Look, they, he's only been in the band a few years. Joined in uh, 2014. I think I think it was for their third album, uh, Joy of Motion. Um, but he's just amazing. Like every limb on his body moves by itself. It, you know, he he plays in a really unique uh, sort of syncopation with the music very specific style that he sort of invented for himself the way he plays. I've seen him do a drum clinic where he talks about that, uh, where he's not looking to just be rhythm. He's looking to actually play a part along to the, how the music is played. Um, really, uh, just uh, taking gent, uh, instrumental music that they do to another level. This band's immensely popular. Uh, for a trio, him, Javier, and, and Tosin, who's a, a guitar hero for, for the new era. Uh, the fact that the three of them can go and tour and headline huge clubs and play, I mean, what they're doing is amazing. And so I think the influence comes from that right there. And uh, yeah, he's he's going to be one of the drum names that's, that's going to be around for a long time. Yeah, I, I think he's one of the ones that's really changing the sound of drums. I think him with some, I, I don't want to name names because they may also be on your list, but uh, certainly of the gent movement, these drummers that, you know, you kind of look at like through the 90s, you have drummers like Dave Weckl, who are kind of thought of as like the drumming gods, if you will. And they have like their DVDs that I would rent and watch and everything. <laughs> um, you had some of the prog guys doing that. But now I think you have like the most talented, most technical drummers playing this, you know, kind of varied prog music, which is sort of a unique thing. So you have this like world-class technical drummer in a band with world-class technical guitar players. Uh, and then also they're successful and they're instrumental. It's really a weird. Honestly, it, it makes no sense. I, yeah. I mean, I, I live, YouTube, I think as much as anything. Um, I've so seen it, them. I've seen them play at this club down here in Florida that play that has, you know, more alternative bands playing there and that type of thing. And we don't get a lot of prog bands down this way, unless it's dream theater once in a blue moon, you know, and yeah. a band like this with three instrumental guys shredding, doing the most complicated music in the world, selling out this club. And I'm walking in and I'm going, how? How, how does this happen? It's yeah. awesome. I mean, it's an incredible thing. And I, I my hat, hat off to them. It's amazing what they're doing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. I don't want to keep talking about him, but I, I like the way that he tunes his toms. I like the way that he he and a couple other drummers have sort of innovated on cymbal sounds and they're really short staccato sounds. And it just changes what they're able to kind of squeeze into drum parts. Um, some people probably don't like that, but it it's super impressive. And I and I feel like I look at a guy like this. I think he's like 28, yeah. And I'm 33. I'm like, hey, who is this? It's just, yeah. it's crazy. I officially feel old when I see someone like that playing the stuff he can play.
all right, let's uh, let's keep going. Uh, Randy, uh, well, we're number two. For, okay, let's see, number two. All right. Uh, now my number two is Neil Peart. Not number one. Oh my goodness! Not, um, what will the one. people say? <laughs> what will they say? Um, I didn't put him at number one mainly because um, look, he's kind of late to the scene in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, nineteen seventy four, seventy five. Um, and you have roughly seven to eight years prior to that, depending on where you want to plant your flag for the earliest progressive rock. Um, so for that alone, I, I, I couldn't see myself putting him at number one. Um, I think obviously, I don't know what I can really say about him that hasn't been said. And, you know, it just kind of, it's kind of self-explanatory. I think Obviously, the influence uh, there. There's a certain marker that has to be placed with with him. If not from the moment you hear his drumming on anthem um, on Fly By Night, you know if you want to move that marker a little, a few years later, you can drop it at Farewell to Kings or Hemispheres or something. You know, there's there's something in particular from a Farewell to Kings to I'm going to say signals um, where their, their music was changing so rapidly. And I think all of those guys grew so fast um, through those records and really kind of charted their own course. You know, Um, I was talking to a buddy of mine about it though. And like, I think what, what's different about him is because of that few year difference uh, between what you could call like the first wave of prog rock and whatever you want to place rush um, because, you know, some people debate whether or not they're prog rock, which is kind of ridiculous, but um, he, he was influenced by those first wave guys. So he loved Phil Collins uh, and Palmer and Bill Bruford and all these guys. So, you know, just, just that difference of a few years, I think makes, makes a big difference um not to mention that he obviously loved like keith moon and ginger baker and those kind of guys so where his his influences were were contemporaries of each other if that makes any sense so and i think that's kind of what makes him a little bit different um i think rush because of their production with neil you really get like almost the quintessential uh drum sound of where drummers wanted to take progressive rock where you hear every single note and everything is like super precise and just his his ideas for for fills and in orchestrating drum parts uh he is really the guy that kind of like brought that all together and in some ways everything you love or don't love about where drumming in the genre has been since i think it always is going to go back to him you know
Uh, I just love his musicality. Yeah, I was. I just heard the other day. I was somewhere. You, I mean, it's not like you can go a week without hearing Tom Sawyer somewhere, and uh, <laughs> you know. But you find yourself just air drumming the entire song, just out of memory, um, and that's because of the brilliant songwriting that he did in that song. And you know, he's played more complicated things, obviously, that he's known for. But I just love just that song alone is a drumming masterclass. I think in in how to take a simple song and just make it badass. What's funny is Randy said this, my, like I literally have written down because Neil, I, I will say this. I don't know how he's not your number one. I can respect that. But still, I, I feel like he is the number one prog drummer of all time for what that's worth. But I say, I say on here, what can you say that hasn't already been said already? I mean, he literally, you know, everything's been said about the guy. I will share like one quick little uh, vignette is that we, we drove eight hours to see them in Houston at an outdoor amphitheater and they were doing like most of moving pictures throughout the show. And there was one song where he like made a mistake. And I was like, I've never seen him make a mistake. You know, of course, <laughs> I'm sure he makes mistakes. But you could just see on his face, it kind of like flushed. And he was like, I can't believe I made a mistake, you know. But I got to see them on the R40 uh, tour. And he was just incredible in the songs they were doing. Uh, I think Hemispheres for me is probably uh, where they were really at their, their highest point. I think just his drumming on that is just out of control. Uh, amazing and then I like what they did with electronics I mean into the end of your little era here like what he innovated with the electronics I think uh, is is amazing and I think he's also very wise that he's decided to step away from Rush at a time where he still knows he can play up to the level he wants to play and this is the time to quit because I think he doesn't want to see himself start to falter and not be able to play these parts and I, I think that's pretty cool yeah okay I'm intrigued what do you got for your number two Kyle all right, so you may have heard of this guy. I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing his name, but it's uh, Nick DiVirgilio uh, from Spock's Beard. Um, yeah. I think Nick is on this list, and, and I'm guessing there's other people that probably wouldn't put him number two. Um, I couldn't think of him being anywhere else on the list, but it's probably because I'm such a big Neil Morris and Spock's Beard fan. Um, and I, I think one thing that puts him on this list is drumming is incredible. I'll talk about that in a second, but how many other drummers could you think of that upon losing their lead singer and their primary creative force in Neil Morris could, could move from behind the drums and become the front man. Uh, not that they were just necessarily like capable of it, but that they could own it and do that. Just one, and I think, just, just one more. Just one more. Phil Collins, right? <laughs> uh, we've already talked about him. But otherwise, it's hard to imagine even two or three. Um, I think that's how talented he is, not just as a drummer, but as, really as a multi-instrumentalist and as, as a songwriter. Um, I've also been fortunate to see Nick in concert a few times. And there's just such a difference in the way that he hits the drums and he projects sounds and his dynamic ability is just really, I would almost say unmatched. I mean, he hits it hard, but he also, he can hit it soft, if that makes sense. Um, and so his sound is so clean. His, his, uh, his chops are so tight and he's got this sort of jazz fusion vocabulary that reminds you of someone like a Todd Sukerman uh, or like a Dave Weckl. And he brings that into Prague and he doesn't sound wimpy or, or haphazard or ill-defined. He just sounds really solid. So he grooves, but he also can play in spots. And I don't know, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, I think also when you look at this era, obviously he plays on, and I, and I did use Roy your book just to make a little shameless plug. Thank you. Um, the Essential Modern Progressive Rock Albums. Great book. Uh, it's really awesome. But he plays on three essential albums, what you would call essential albums. Um, and I agree with that too. So the light V and then snow, which is maybe my favorite album from that era. Um, but he also helped bring, uh, Kevin Gilbert's, uh, posthumous, uh, the shaming of the, uh, the true to life, 
Uh, he played with uh, Mike Keneally. Uh, he's gone on to play with, with Genesis, Fate's Warning, Jordan Rudess, Big, Big Train, and then another band, Randy. You need to look up The Fringe. They're great. Um, <laughs> this, so is the, I, this is the Randy McStein podcast. This is the Randy McStein podcast. I think uh, he knew that. That's why he agreed to be on it. But what's so, it like playing with Nick, I guess? That's the obvious question. Well, man. He's an amazing guitar player too, right? I mean, that's the other yeah. thing. He's he can play everything really well. Nick is immensely talented, but you know him better than than we do. So, share a story or two. Yeah, I'm a little biased here. Um, you know, it's it's hard for me to put into words. I it truly is one of the the lights of my life uh, to play music with him and to know him and. Uh, for me personally, like my association with him um, really, I mean, it changed my life in so many ways and, and my career, you know. Um, so for that alone, um, I, it's hard for me to, to not be biased. But um, I, I was a fan first and foremost, though, and that's how we met. You know, um, I was a huge Spock Beard fan when I was in my teens. Um, I discovered their music through the first transatlantic record because hmm. neil morse was the the one guy in that project that i was not uh hip to you know so this would have been what i think 2000 and i was born in 88 so um so yeah i was like in my early teens and that first transatlantic album i thought was amazing and uh so i wanted to you know go down the neil morse rabbit hole and uh you know hearing the spock's beard music was obviously uh, a big deal, but it was, it was what his drumming in particular though, always struck me as incredibly musical and, you know, technical, but not in a overtly uh, like, you know, kind of like a studying type of way. It, it seemed very natural and very flowing and just always like perfect for the music. Um, and, you know, that's that's also the era, too, of like, you know, gigantic drum kits and all this kind of stuff. And I remember opening Modern Drummer and, and, and seeing like he played like a five piece kit. And I was like, oh, how can you play prog rock with a five piece kit? You know, um, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, but no, I and you mentioned the Kevin Gilbert stuff and, and uh, that music is life changing for me. So, I mean, we met in 2009. I just reached out to him via email like, like on his website because I was working on the first lo-fi resistance record and uh I was playing everything on the record and then thought like uh I I was kind of hitting some roadblocks with my own abilities and creativity from the drum point of view and I was like man wouldn't it be amazing if Nick DiVirgilio could play on this and uh it was like a really big step for me to try to approach a guy like that very much still in my fanboy phase and not having worked with anybody at that caliber. And, uh, you know, he was very receptive and that got the ball rolling. And now we play in a band together and I talked to him about an hour ago. So, um, <laughs> That's great. you know, so it's like there, there, there's a feeling though, uh, whenever I'm playing with him or creating with him, uh, it's, it's so effortless and, uh, you know, we can really kind of take it about anywhere. So I'm truly grateful. Um, yeah. To I actually to think, him. I actually think his drumming in big, big train is probably <laughs> as good as anything he's ever done yeah. also. Um, 
So yeah, I think what impressed me the most, and I'll, I'll, I don't want to ramble on too much about, about him, but just the fact that he's amazingly good at everything that that's always, when I first was watching Spock's beard videos back in the day, I knew he's a great drummer. Then he comes out and you see how amazing he can sing. And then he's doing these amazing acoustic guitar solos and you're like, well, forget it. I give up. Yeah. I'm not, play, I'm not playing anything anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. He's a full on, you know, all around musician. It's crazy. And, um, yeah. He's the Prince case. of Prague. Yeah. <laughs> Prince of Prague. His music tastes are, are all over the place, uh, which is great. And it obviously allows him to play, you know, the most complex prog rock or tour with Tears for Fears for a decade. I mean, it's like, right. yeah. you know, you can't say that about a lot of people who get known for one particular context. Maybe they really shine in that one thing, but not something else. He's one of those guys that can pretty confidently walk into just about any musical situation and really own it. Okay, I'm going to jump into my number two, and I think Kyle, you were probably referring to this guy when you were when you were talking about the other guys like Matt Garska that are bringing drums to new era, which is Matt Halpern from Periphery. Yep. And, you know, another relatively young guy, early 30s, um, and I think he maybe was an influence on Garska, sort of. Um, and I know that they the two, two bands have toured together and those guys know each other well. And this guy's just revolutionary in a number of things. I mean, not only is it an amazing drummer uh, bringing in these new techniques and new way of playing, but also started uh, all these, uh, doing a number of clinics and was one of the first drummers uh, giving lessons online and started this band happy website, which was, yep. I, I don't think is around anymore, but was, was trying to really encourage a, a new wave of musicians and, uh, just really smart guy. I had a chance to interview him for my book and just extremely intelligent and, and beyond just a, a drummer. This guy could run a record label probably one day. And, yeah. um, you know, a, a, and if you watch Periphery's Evolution too, he's, they're fine tuning themselves also and trying to write more melodic music and, and more concise music and, and structure their songwriting in a way. And he's going right along with that. And he often talks about how the main thing with him is the song and not how uh, you know how much he can shred or how many you know toms he can play in a song but he can play everything and he's extremely skilled and talented and musical and uh, a great drummer so that's that's my number two yeah awesome choice I, i've gotten to see them in concert a couple of times and he's another one of these guys i mean he it's funny he and matt garska i feel like they'll forever be kind of talked about in the same sentence because they're they're very similar and they have certain things that i like about each one of them but they really emblematic of gent drumming and, and kind of this high level of technical prowess and just doing things. I feel like they kind of one up each other with each kind of release. Uh, I think Halpern's the first. So I like him at number two above uh, Garska. 
And, uh, you know, he's got his drum sounds through Get Good Drums. He's got like all this stuff that he's recorded uh, with Nolly. And uh, he's got his own like entrepreneur like wing. And if you follow him on Instagram, he's kind of bouncing from one thing to another. So he sort of reminds me of like a modern Mike Portnoy that he's he's got his hands in a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, and he's just cool. The way he plays, it's, it's really hard and, and powerful. Um, but it's also really smart. Like you'll listen to a drum part and you're like, what is he doing? And then you watch it and it's like, Oh, okay. That's how he's doing that. I mean, he's one of these guys. It's always, he's always creative. He's always changing the way that I think about drums. And, uh, he's one of these guys that you can just tell the next 10, 15 years of his playing, uh, God willing will be, be amazing. Like I'm excited to see what he comes up with and what that band comes up with. We know it's interesting. These guys, a lot of the drummers that are on your list have been around a long time. And so they've gotten involved in a number of different projects and side projects and super groups and all this stuff. It's going to yeah. be interesting to see because like uh, on my list, Hearn and, and the two Mats have just been in their bands, basically. Right. Um, so it's going to be interesting in 10 years. Okay, are they going to start being in super groups and trying to do other things and make themselves, you know, more well known into other areas? And we'll see what happens. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I don't have a ton to add here because I'm, I'm. I'm realizing that with both of your lists, that I'm sort of. There was a certain period where I was really into the metal side of things, and I, I seem to have gotten away from it. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting to me that it, your lists both seem to signify this this fact that where modern prog may be at in general is a more metal influenced um newer, newer era for sure i think that's you know I, I it's one of the things that i lament about sometimes is is the bands like spock's beard and stuff that are the sort of last uh wave of bands that still sound like the classic prog bands sort of yeah um doesn't i don't know if there's too many new bands like coming out in the last two three years for example like that new that start out that way I think it's yeah. more bands that start out this this way, <laughs> which um, you know, for good or for bad. I mean, it's a matter of preference, and they they do what they do well. So it's interesting. I'd like to see more bands come out trying to incorporate that classic sounds a little bit more um, as a new band. But we'll see. I think there's a lot of fans that want that kind of classic sound. To be honest, like you talked about Opeth, like the growling, like yeah, I don't I don't love it. It took me several albums to get to where I could listen to it. Same thing with periphery. Like I, it's not my favorite thing. I like the more melodic section. So it does seem though that, that the growling, the more metal elements, there's a bigger fan base for it. So I think there's probably pressure to appeal to that. Well, maybe it's also the influence of how these, I mean, these guys are young. That's what they grew up listening yeah. to and that's their influences, right? I mean, that there is yeah. something for that. So let's move on. Let's, let's do the number one. So I'm curious about what your number one is, Randy, but I, I might have an idea. So let's see. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to put Bill Bruford. Okay. Yeah, I can live with that one. I, I I thought maybe Mick Pointer, the first drummer of Marillion, but I thought um, 
No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there is something to be said for um, people who come first, though, in bands. Uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, John Rutsey is always kind of like a punchline, you know, because he's on the first Rush record. And then obviously Neil Peart did what he did. Um, I think the thing about Bill Bruford that that's really well, first of all, I mean, I, look, yes, King Crimson, Genesis, his own band, Bruford, and UK, yeah. all in the span of 10 years. Um, that's that's a pretty undeniable run of elite progressive rock contribution, <laughs> if you yeah. ask me. Um, you know, yes would have been enough to cement his place in history, but it didn't stop there. And I think the the, the nature of the fact that, you know, this is a man who recorded fragile and, and close to the edge and decided this band is peaking and we're not going anywhere from here. I need to get myself into a more interesting musical situation. Says a lot about his, his desire for pushing his own boundaries and creativity and to step into King Crimson, which is insane. Um, ready to reinvent his playing you know and so bill bruford shows up in king crimson and, and jamie muir is is this like mad percussion guy who is you know completely changing the way bruford plays drums um and then you know kyle you were talking about neil pert's um electronic yeah. use into the 80s you know bruford got there first you know it's like right just seemed to be somebody who uh yeah i he, i don't know it, it's undescribable what he he really did um i think in a lot of ways and and some drummers can't really stand what he did frankly um but i've always loved his his sound and his approach and um kind of endless creativity that he seemed to always be pushing himself as far out as he could go and um, not always landing, which which I think is also, though, like a really important testament to like his search, you know. I think it's a great take. I mean, just drumming alone on fragile and close to the edge is uh, amazing and um, brilliant. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think you can argue with that. I mean, 
Pierre Bruford, uh, take your pick, I guess, you know, I mean, that's some of the best drumming that's ever going to ever going to be. But I think segueing into Kyle, your number one, which is also going to be up there probably in that list. Uh, yeah, you might have guessed what I would pick. Um, I mean, who else could I pick? So yeah. uh, it's Mike Portnoy. And then I, I've listed out all the bands they play with. And Mike's is always funny because it's Dream Theater, Liquid Tension Experiment, Transatlantic, OSI, Neil Morse, et cetera, et cetera, through that, through that you know, period of time. You know, I think of Mike in that era as sort of like the Michael Jordan of rock, of prog rock drumming. Um, he's just, he's just winning every championship during that time, in my opinion. Um, I think objectively too, he hits all four, four criteria that I had. So he's musical, he's technical, uh, he's influential and he's essential to the success of his bands. And so certainly he, he surrounds himself with really talented people and I think that's paramount to why the albums he's on that were so successful. I and mean, he's playing with some of the best guitar players, some of the best bassists, some of the best songwriters in Prague, but also he brings a certain, you know, moxie or ethos to these bands that makes them great. Uh, kind of calling back to your book, Roy, he, in that era, 90 to 2005, he played on six essential albums. It really should be seven because one came out in 2004. I know you couldn't put every Neil Morse album, but <laughs> for me, that's, I think, maybe their best album and it should be on there. But anyway, uh, closest uh, next person on that list uh, would have three. Nick, Nick played on three uh, during that time period. He was on 19 different studio albums during those 15 years. Here's probably the most ridiculous stat about Portnoy during this era is that he won Modern Drummer's Best Prog Drummer. Uh, it was 12 years in a row, so from 95 to 2006. I, it's, I don't think that would ever be repeated. I think if you compare it to athletics, there really is just nothing like that. And so um, not enough that I could say about Mike and just the way that he drums. For me, he was my entry point into progressive. So that's aging myself, of course. But I went from Lars Ulrich is the greatest drummer of all time, straight into Neil Peart, straight into Mike Portnoy. Um, and so that's kind of why I think I favor metal is I, I really started in kind of hard rock metal. And as a drummer, I found my match in Mike, somebody that could not play what he was playing on certain things for sure. Um, so, and for me, I think like his, his uh, kind of high watermark is Liquid Tension, that first album, Paradigm Shift. And you think about like popping that CD in with headphones uh, on the back of a bus headed to a track meet, that would be my experience. And just hearing those first like 30 seconds of that song, you're like, oh my gosh, like what is he even doing? Um, so obviously influential in Prague, outside of Prague. And, and continues to be amazing today.
Yeah, look, there's not enough that can be said about Mike and his influence on the whole scene and the genre. I've, I, I don't want to go into it too much again for myself because everything that's revolved around the Prague Report and my book is always comes back to some degree to Mike because <laughs> he's been on every album. It's really impossible to get away from it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I, I think what I'll add to what you said besides his ability um, is just that uh, by doing what he did. Uh, and supporting even websites like like the Prog Report and and what he does with Cruise to the Edge and 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 his own cruise that he did with bringing on new bands he's he's been one of the singular reasons to keeping the genre afloat and extending yes. it to other fans and bringing his fans along and telling them no you should like Neil Morris you should listen to this and and I think that's as important as anything that he's that he's ever done yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, to your last point, um, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, every everything that's been said, but I, I think that last thing is very important because he he really does signify a, a certain uh, gateway opening for so many people, keeping the genre going and keeping people interested in in discovering things that um, you know that he really loved and that he thought everybody should know about. Anybody that's a fan of his, if you, I did a podcast with him where we just talk about cover songs that he's done, and he's done over three hundred cover songs of <laughs> of different bands ranging from the Beatles to the Osmonds to King Crimson and so on. And that's yeah. a great one to listen to, just because you hear him being a fan talking about the first time he heard that song and why it was important for him to do it as a cover and so on. So yeah, he's at his core just a music fan. He's an encyclopedia uh, and uh, and and a good guy. I've gotten to know him uh, over the years, which has been amazing and uh, just great, super nice. So, um, uh, okay, I'm jump into my one and uh, sort of finish this thing off here. Uh, so, I don't know if this is sort of a controversial one or not. I, I don't think it is, but I'm going to say Marco Miniman um, yeah. is it's my my I think the top drummer and and really my personal favorite of uh, of the newer sort of guys and I don't know if it's fair to call him really new because he's not a, not 30 years old like some of these other guys but uh, he, I think the name that he's made for himself has really been in the last 10 years uh, and uh, you know touring with uh, the stuff he's did with Stephen Wilson was amazing he's been touring with Cetriani for years on and off uh, great you know solo careers has almost 20 solo albums that he's done the Aristocrats, which is this incredible instrumental band with Guthrie Govan and Brian Beller on bass, and those guys are insane. Um, and also really successful worldwide touring for years, um, which is awesome to see. And even has a, a great side project, uh, Levin, Menem, and Rudis. They, they've done a couple albums yeah. uh, back in 2016. They did one. Um, I find uh, the thing that really sets them apart for me is live. So on studio, he's amazing, but he still has to play within the song. Live, he's out of control, nuts. And uh, just, you can, I've been to shows where he played with Cetriani, and Cetriani is captivating in, in itself with, you know, his, his shiny guitar and all the stuff that he, he's doing. And all you do is watch Miniman on the drums. <laughs> and he's awesome. His drum solos are amazing and creative and um, a, a trip to see um and again he's another one of these guys his solo records he plays the guitar plays the keyboards he'll do some singing can play every instrument just ridiculously talented um and uh was 
down, it was either between him or Mangini for, to replace Portnoy for Dream Theater. Um, yeah. But I do think they, Mangini was the better fit. I don't, I don't know how Miniman would have fit in the, the strict, specific nature of what that band does because he doesn't seem like he's one of those guys. But just yeah. the talent that he has was, is just so overwhelming. But uh, yeah, that's my number one, and I think he's amazing. So I love the pick. He's my number one. I love Marco. I think he's got such a sense of humor and such a creative way of, of approaching the drums. And so nothing he does feels like he's copying someone else. He's also not inhibited by any sort of technical deficiency. He can play whatever he wants to play. And I'll be honest, that whole Dream Theater uh, you know, audition thing that they did on YouTube, I was like heartbroken that they didn't pick Marco. <laughs> I felt like he was certainly the better pick. And I, and I really, it's, I think, a shame what might have been and maybe it wouldn't have worked, but, um, and I think things work out for a reason, but, um, I remember watching that and being like, well, they're, they got to pick Marco and they didn't. And I was like, Oh, this is crazy. So <laughs> guys, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I think this is really deep, intense discussion of drumming, which is awesome. Hey Roy. And, yeah. I, sorry to interrupt. And I know we've gone so long on this, but, uh, is there, did y'all do honorable mentions at all? I feel like we <laughs> kind of throw just, we don't have to talk about them. Just throw out names. If you want to just throw out names without going into a whole explanation of, yeah, I'll go for it. Let's see. I mean, I surely y'all have some from classic era. Do y'all have some like honorable mentions? I well, like I think just generally I, some names that I thought might be on yeah. there. Um, and now they escape me. Uh, for me, well, like Nick Mason, Pink Floyd, I know technically not, necessarily there but just he's the only member that's been on every pink floyd album i uh, had him down yeah well, i knew terry, he couldn't top five but i knew he he had i would to be say mentioned. um terry bazio is one that we might have considered you know it was frank zappa stuff and all that technically incredible um, yeah he played with the uk as well virgil donati is yep. uh is is still doing uh, around doing some crazy stuff um who else are we forgetting i mean uh, todd, todd Zuckerman from sticks is awesome <laughs> Yeah, if you, <laughs> you know, not them. a guy a lot of people know, but he's amazing. So I've I seen a, a drum whole, clinic with him, and he is incredible. I mean, one of the best drummers for sure. Yeah, I had a whole sidebar of only Zappa drummers because, um, <laughs> yeah, Chester Thompson, Ansley Dunbar, Terry Bozio, Vinnie Cagliuta, Vinnie Cagliuta. Chad Wackerman gets into the 80s, but, um, and you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to linger, but uh, I think Alan White needs to be mentioned, um, yeah. and I think that. The context of other great progressive bands, you know, 
John Weathers from General Giant, BJ Wilson from Procol Harum, Guy Evans, Vandergraaf Generator, um, you know, Christian Vander from Magma, that guy's like completely doing his own thing. It does go to show you just what the drummer's influence is on the music. And, uh, you know, some of these guys are not people that maybe stand out as technical innovators or, or what have you. But, um, you know, the, the music that they're playing is, is very much tied to what they're contributing. And Nick Mason is, in a way, like the perfect example of that. Um, I feel like he doesn't get the credit. Like, in some ways, drummers don't give Ringo Starr credit. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah he's Ringo. He, he, yeah, he's, he's almost like the, the Ringo of the, the progressive rock. He, I mean, he co-wrote Echoes and Time. He, he contributed, like, sound effects to a lot of... I mean, he's a big part of Pink Floyd, so... And as a producer, um, right. Robert Wyatt, he produces a great Steve Hillage record. So he, uh, he, there's a lot more happening with him than he gets credit, I think. Right, right. Agreed. Many, um, many, many more. <laughs> There's, there's a lot. There's a lot. And so, you know, we love all the drummers out there. We hope no one got offended. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, guys, uh, if, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you enjoyed this one, please check out our other ones. There's more great ones to come. Uh, we got a lot more great guests coming on the next few ones over the next coming months, and we'll try and get some more uh, programming up. Check out Prog Report Radio uh, also for some great music and some of these shows and, you know, our – YouTube channel, iTunes, Google Play, progreport.com, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you guys again soon. Randy, Kyle, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, guys.